everyone, I'm Joanna McKenzie, a data scientist with the Data Lab, and today I'm at Data Summit Day 2, um, our two-day conference on all things data, providing the finale to DataFest. Here with me is Professor Liberty Viterte, a researcher and statistician who's been speaking to the summit about how to win the lottery and get away with murder. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Data Summit. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. You've chosen a really eye-catching title for your presentation. Do you want to give us a summary of what you've been talking about? Well, the key is always the title. It can always go down from there. You just got to get people in the room. But the whole idea is to take statistics and data, which, you know, for people here who are actually really interested in data, maybe to have them take a step back. And for people who don't necessarily love data or statistics or math, bring it to a level where it really can make sense and not be scary. Yeah. And you've done that by going through various clips of things that happen on the news and and pulling that in and going through the numbers in a more detailed way almost. The idea is that, you know, if you really understand something, if you're an expert in something and someone comes to you with an idea about whatever you're an expert in, the first thing you do is ask questions, right? That's how you get a feel for whether their idea is a good one or a bad one. The problem with data and numbers and statistics and math is that sometimes we don't even know what questions to start with. We don't even know what questions to ask. So what this talk is really about is giving people the questions that I ask anytime I'm presented with some statistic or study or report and making them simple enough because I mean they really are the questions that I ask and making them simple enough that people can really um, feel sort of almost more empowered to ask back with statistics and data. And you structured it along very straightforward questions. Uh, when the people came up with this statistic, who did they ask? What did they ask? Very everyday language that should make it a bit more accessible to people. Who, what, how, why? The basis of everything. Anyone can remember that, even me. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's an interesting approach to take because it seems to be lacking in our education of people in general numeracy is, okay, this is 15 million, but what is that? And practice how do we get that into our heads in a way that we really understand it it's funny you know when you when you you talk to a kid and they say oh I, I'm terrible at math right you hear parents all the time say oh it's okay Susie or Johnny I was terrible at math too I hated it and I did fine you never hear them say that about reading or writing right you would never hear a kid say oh I hate reading class and the parent goes oh it's okay I didn't learn to read and I'm doing fine right we're not allowed to say that it's not something we say And with the amount of data and how important data and information is becoming, it's it's really, I mean, it's just, I I can't even explain how important I think it is for kids to really understand math and logic and statistics in school. And it really all all starts with the parents. I think I, I fully agree with you. In fact, in the way here, when I was thinking about talking to you today, I was thinking about, we do teach pretty much compulsory mathematics right the way through secondary school in Scotland. And that's a wonderful thing. And I've used a lot of mathematics in my career as a data scientist but perhaps there's a better argument now for teaching statistics instead of mathematics perhaps even replacing um, algebra calculus that you possibly can live without and not really notice with a grasp of basic statistics an understanding of numeracy an ability to understand economics even 
I completely agree. You know, the, what has happened is calculus has become sort of the basic standard, right? That's like the last class you take, okay, is this calculus class, which really only is going to help you if you're going to become an engineer, okay? I mean, sorry, mathematicians, I'm probably going to get totally slammed for that. But, you know, it's really, that shouldn't be the terminal final course that people take. And that shouldn't be sort of the, the penultimate of, of mathematics for people. I really think this idea of introducing a statistics, a probability, almost a quantitative reasoning course should really be integral for everyone. Basically being an informed citizen, being able to read the newspaper and think about what these numbers are saying rather than just taking them and it's truth. Yeah, it's almost like there's a basic level of numeracy which includes statistics and the ability to talk about numbers in an informed way. And you don't need to be good at calculus to get there. And if you are good at calculus, you can be good at calculus and still not be there. Exactly. It's the one thing I, when I first gave this talk to a, a mathematical ill data audience, I actually got really worried because I was like, is this going to just be too simple for them? Is this going to be too dumb? And it was actually, some of them were more surprised about some of this stuff than anyone. Because just because you're good at calculus and geometry and algebra doesn't mean you get the idea of a quantitative reasoning, a quantitative logical way of thinking. And presenting that in a, an approachable way, in a way that actually communicates to people who are not keenly nu numerate, that is a very keen important skill for a data scientist because that is how we get insights from data. That's how things actually happen based on the work that we can do. Exactly. That's a huge part of my goal is to give is to give other data scientists the ability to you know, you know not give them the ability they know how to do it, but give them these questions in such a simple way and fun examples so that they're able to tell non-data people how to do this. It's a pretty important part. And actually quite a lot of your background has been about this sort of science communication aspect of things. That's something you chose to focus on through your statistics career? Or? You know, it's funny, I kind of fell into it. You know, it's that whole thing, one thing leads to another. And I was doing my PhD and I was trying to explain to my dad what I was doing. And um, he's one of these sort of anti-education, anti-math, anti-everything people. And so trying to come up with a way to explain to him the statistical inference, I was coming up with these random examples. And and um, I thought this is kind of fun. Like, yeah, this is kind of fun and fun stuff to figure out. And uh, that's how I really started doing it. Yeah, and there's a real discipline and there's a real set of skills that are involved with communicating these things well. How did you develop them yourself? How did how did you end up trial and big error? <laughs> Not the way. I think the key is to have someone to try these off on. So first of all, the people I originally try it to are all my students. Let me tell you, there is nothing more difficult than an audience of 20-year-olds. Like, nothing. Okay. 14-year-olds. 14-year-olds, true. Yeah, that's true, actually. Um, but I can, I can sort of bribe 14-year-olds with candy. But, like, you know, the 20-year-olds, there's nothing I can do. And I teach the classes. I teach the terminal introduction to probability and statistics class. So I have the biology majors, the political science majors, the anthropology majors. The, you know, the, again, it's a low bar, okay, to make a statistics class good for them. But I always try my examples on them first. And then the other person I try them out on is my dad, who hates math, hates learning, hates education. He thinks it's all stupid. And so if I can get him to enjoy an example and understand an example, then I know I've done a good job. 
Yeah, so that's an interesting thing about um, diversity of trying out your approach to communication, yeah. essentially on d- different people, different audiences. And it's interesting, everyone has that, what's the, the? it's like your grandmother, your six-year-old cousin, and your something else. I think that's nonsense. I think you should have present it in one way to everyone. I really do. I think everyone enjoys, I mean, I've been to so many of these math and stats talks where after the first slide, I literally have no idea what's going on. You know, if unless it's your subject, you like you really don't know what's going on. So I I really believe you present everything in the same level to everyone and then people can really understand it and enjoy it and if they want to know more then they can come talk to you about it. Yeah, that's a great point. I've seen quite a lot of ac- academic talks where people have spent a lot of time on something, they've become very expert in it, and they forget that we've not all spent that time and become expert in that things, and their scene setting is lacking. Exactly. And so therefore you lose the whole... You lose them the after talk. like three minutes, and even sometimes after one. <laughs> All right, so um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, you are described as a statistician, that's your field. Your, yes. Yeah. In this era of data science, mm-hmm. uh, how do you find that changes what it means to be a statistician for you? Well, first of all, anytime I'm at a dinner party, I say I'm a data scientist, because then I find that the chairs on either side of me are actually full instead of empty when I say I'm a statistician. <laughs> but I think, it's, I think it's a really confusing difference between statistics and data science. I think it's a, I think really, I got to tell you, I don't even think I really truly understand yet what really encompasses the discipline of data science. I'm not sure everyone does. I think it's a, I think it's a new, changing, growing uh, beast. And I think eventually it's going to be defined as a discipline. But I think no one, I mean, maybe some people way smarter than I am, but I don't think anyone really knows exactly what it is yet. And really, you know, we're so at the infancy of what we're able to do with data and really what we what we are going to be able to figure out what to do with the unimaginable amounts that we have that I think it's going to be a little while before data science really is defined as a discipline and really what it is. Yeah, I would fully agree with you. In fact, my discipline originally was physics. People who have the, the job title of data science at the moment can have a, a vast, broad range of knowledge and their knowledge of statistics might be anything from very little to quite a lot. Exactly. I think it's really, I think it's an exciting thing to be in because it is changing, but it can be a little bit confusing at times as to what it actually is. And I think that means that we need to build a team. So the theme of DataFest has been data together and just thinking about how varied the tasks that a data scientist can do, it helps you to think about bringing in people with different skills, communication, statistics, knowledge, programming. Exactly. No, I think it's really an exciting thing to be a part of and sort of exposes you to so many different types of people. And your actual PhD was very algorithmic and focused as well, wasn't it? It was all about facial, facial recognition? Yeah, sort of. It's, it's called facial shape analysis. It's basically 3D shape analysis. You know, how do we map these crazy looking shapes? And I love it. And we're doing some really cool, fun applied projects with it, um, with Smile Train, the cleft lip and palate charity. Um, but it's, it was a great thing. And I had a a fabulous supervisor at um, University of Glasgow to do my PhD and so I it's fun I'm sort of you know it's nice to be able to keep some of that real methodological research in with all this really fun stuff that I get to do too are you still researching just now yes we are we're still working
working on it and we're really applying it right now. So it's been an exciting time. So what sort of applications have you found for it then? So if you think about the face, it's a 3D object and you know, how do you map it? You know, how, do you, how do you find different points on it anatomically and compare it to other people's faces? So one of the projects we're working right now is with Smile Train. So if you see those commercials on television for cleft lip and palate, what Smile Train does is they send US and UK doctors into developing countries not to perform the surgeries on these children, but to train local doctors on how to perform these surgeries. So what that means though, it's a teach a man to fish model instead of you know just going and doing the surgeries. So it means they can do an exponential amount more surgeries because they're training all these local doctors and then the local doctors are training more local doctors. So it's a great model. But in a lot of these developing countries, there's not the structure for overseeing doctors. You know, here in the, there's medical boards, there's tons of checks on all these surgeons. Whereas in the developing world, there isn't necessarily that same level of check. So what we're able to do is to take this um, 3D image of the child and apply our algorithm that maps the face, if you will, and then spits out this quantitative assessment of how well the surgery was. So it means that every single child can have this quantitative assessment and it'll flag when maybe something's not right or maybe the surgery didn't go so well. It can also be used as a training tool for the local doctors to train more local surgeons. So it can also be a teaching tool. Oh, very good. That's it's great to when you've got something that you can see some see research becoming real exactly. like that and really changing people's lives. Exactly, it's wonderful. Yeah, that's a great thing. Um, okay, um, I'm going to ask you about your cook show ah, <laughs> as well yes. because it's a little bit out of left field for yes. people who understand statistics. Liberty's Liberty's Great American Cookbook. Yes. <laughs> How did it go when you when you first sort of stepped up and said I'm going to present a cookery show? Was that a, a big jump for you? Well. You know, I kind of think about communicating, whether you're communicating about food or statistics or data science, it's all sort of how you package something to communicate to people. So I sort of saw it more as practice for for communicating my statistics. But oh, it was a blast. It was so much fun to do. And um, I ate a lot. <laughs> and you focused on American food when you were... Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's my that's an easy one. Plus, American food, we just steal everybody else's cuisine, so it's really easy to come up with American food to do. Big melting pot of cultures. Uh, we just, yeah, I know. It's like pretty much everything can become American food because we've stolen everybody's cuisine. We did a bit of that as well, mm-hmm. in fairness. Like, true, true. But it's very delicious. That sounds really good. Um, so a couple of things... Um, all this work in science communication, things like that, is there something that you wish you could really get people to understand in order to just generally um, make the population a bit more ready for the sort of concepts that we're talking about in statistics and data and the news all the time? I think we sort of touched on it earlier. The main thing is that, you know, math and stats is not scary. You know, we, we, we get scared of things we don't understand and that sometimes math and stats can be taught in a way that really doesn't make sense to us. It's like, if you can't understand, I, I really struggled with reading when I was a child. I didn't learn to read until I was in third grade, which I guess is almost 10 years old. I mean, I really struggled. But the point was, was that it wasn't like they were gonna just stop helping me learn to read, right? I had to do it. I had to learn to read, and I did. And they tried many different methods to, for me, you know, in terms of how we learn, we all learn in different ways. So it took a lot of different ways until it figured out how could I learn to read. That's the same thing as math. Like 
everyone can do it. It's just we have not, we just sort of almost haven't believed that. You know, we haven't tried all the different ways to help people learn so that they really understand it. And I think that's what I find most important is to tell parents that if you want your kid to be an informed citizen in the future, they've got to learn how to do this and they have to understand it. On the other hand, I think it's really is an onus on the education system to teach it better. And that's brilliant. And this afternoon's panel, um, Jobs of the Future, you'll be talking about. Have you got any particular thoughts on what's the future going to look like in the job market? How is it, how is it going to change in your opinion? I think what I'm so excited about is that I'm the moderator, so I get to listen to what everybody else thinks and learn from them. I'm really excited about it. It's you yourself have got quite an unusual mix of different approaches in your career, and I know that there's a lot of thought thinking out there that that sort of thing, where people do different things over different periods in their life and use different skill sets, is maybe going to be more common. Do you think that that's going to get easier over time? Do you think? I don't know. I mean, I think it's exciting. I think it's hard to use different skill sets to change different things. I think it's way more exciting, though. Um, and I, I really just can't wait to see what all these other people say. Makes it challenging in terms of educating people as well, making sure they have... Um, it's not just about being human, being literate anymore. It's about having the resilience, having the self-awareness, uh, being able to locate opportunities when they come and, and having the flexibility in your, your life as well as your job to, to jump when opportunity comes for you, which is not always easy. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I do sometimes think that, you know, inevitably, though, we live in a little bit of a rarefied atmosphere and bubble, and it's easy to forget about, you know, everybody doing everyday jobs, and we're in this... I mean, I, me too, I'm in this very rarefied bubble that I get to be in academia and I get to have a great life and I think, oh, I could go do this or I could go do that. So I think it's really important to, to you know, I, I'm not sure the job market has changed actually that much. I think those things of resilience and ability to change and to think, I mean, I think those things have always been important. I think we may be talking about it more now and we may have a different view on it, but, you know, these changes happen all the time. Um, on the other hand, I have no idea what I'm talking about, so who knows? I think it's the sort of thing where we don't really have in, uh, data um, yeah. to actually track how things are changing over time. So it becomes a little bit of speculation, a little bit coloured by people's individual experience, that sort of thing. All right, I'm going to ask you one more question, and this one is going to be based on what you were saying in your talk today, because there was one point in there where I was quite interested in and had maybe a disagreement. Ooh, I'm ready. Yeah, Bring it. <laughs> so baby boxes. Oh, God, I knew somebody was going to be in the baby audience boxes. that knew about baby boxes. I No, I'm no way an expert in it. And when I had my kids, they didn't have they baby didn't boxes They didn't have a baby box, Scotland, so. and they're doing okay. <laughs> no. Yeah, my kids are fine. Yeah, it's great. They survived, yeah. Yeah, so the interesting point that you made, essentially, if I can try and summarise, from what I heard um, that Finland introduced the baby boxes way back in 1938 um, and that was coincidental with a reduced a significant reduction in infant mortality yes so but your point was essentially that there were other things going on in parallel particularly that in order to get a baby box in Finland you had to go to prenatal classes right and therefore multiple other factors were involved in actually reducing infant mortality which is great totally on board I don't think that's what we're trying to do with the modern reintroduction of baby boxes, though. So I think that what the modern reintroduction of baby boxes were about was less about infant mortality and more about parental poverty. And you made the great point that these state, um, the states in the US are um, 
spending a lot of money and that could be how many diapers for how many thousand children that they could be spent on but that's not fundamentally a different thing from the perspective of a parent if you receive you know your a lifetime supply of child's diapers um, is that different from getting a box that's got baby grows in it and some some books and toys that you would have to buy anyway for the for the kids so it's not wasted in that sense the money's not wasted it's still going to the parents still providing them with information information and actual goods that they can use and not only that but the cost of things like baby furniture is now quite substantial <laughs> so cots cribs things like that now the baby box substitutes for a crib that then parents don't have to buy so even if you don't get your reduction in infant mortality you've still got a good case for using the popularity of baby boxes, the fact that they catch the public imagination to try and make things a little bit less expensive for parents. I completely get your point and I think it's very fair. I think part of my problem with the baby boxes, especially in terms of the Scottish government, is I looked at one. Um, I went on Amazon. It was about me at a retail, like literally just going on Amazon.com. I got everything, including shipping, for about 100 quid. Um, Absolutely everything. And that's at a retail price. So, you know, what they're getting at in bulk is not even close to it. It's a marketing company that's doing this. They're making a fortune off of this. Okay, a fortune. It's absurd really and I don't think that um, sending first of all I don't think every parent should get it I think that's ridiculous I think a lot of parents um, at certain income levels getting this is just absurd and I don't see a couple diapers and a couple a couple books and a couple of this stuff really doing anything if you want to give them a box where the baby can sleep go for it I think that's great but throwing in these books and a onesie and this stuff I just think there's way better things this money can be spent on and I think that if you really want to talk about child poverty having a baby always have enough food is way more important than them having a book So if that money could go to actually providing every single child in Scotland with uh, every single baby, newborn baby, with uh, food and to make sure that they're not malnourished, I think is way more important than a onesie. Uh, So if we want to take that same box and put a bunch of baby food in it, I'm all for it. (laughs) Newborn babies don't eat baby food, though. Or some do. Formula. A lot of formula. Okay, formula. Whatever. I don't know anything about babies. Um, But put a formula in it or put diapers in it, but put things that babies really need rather than all this other stuff. Ah, fair enough. All right, that was a a very good point. And I think we've gone through a fair amount. Is there anything particular you wanted to... Brilliant, then let's close. Thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. So happy to be here. Yeah, it was great to watch your talk as well. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.